Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kettler. And this is episode 12 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 22nd of April. Leon, what's on the program for this week? Well, today we're talking to Stuart Mills. He's uh, from um, uh, CenturyLink, the data communications company, and he's going to be talking to us all about that business. A fascinating company, a global company, uh, very big in communications. And uh, then we're going to have a chat with economist Chris Caton, and uh, we're going to talk to him about this stuff going around at the moment, about um, how people are claiming the election might be slowing down business, and Chris Caton takes issue with that story. Indeed, yeah, very interesting insight. Let's first of all talk to Stuart Mills. We're talking to Stuart Mills, who's the Director for Australia and New Zealand of CenturyLink, one of America's biggest communications and services company, about how companies can fill in the talent gap, and it's a pretty big gap, of IT professionals, what they can do with outsourcing, and how companies like CenturyLink can move in there and help. How does it all work? How does it all work? <laughs> Thank you, Gary. IT wouldn't run without the people who make it run. And there's really kind of two sides of the equation there. There's the, the skills that the vendors need to you know, innovate, and build and design new products and services. And then there's the skills that the buyers need, the, the companies, corporates, enterprises, to you know incorporate those vendor products and services and make them do something that's specific to that company. If you look back 15, 20 years, the rate of technological change has been increasing. Uh, But in that time frame, it wasn't what I'd call a a runaway train. New technologies were invented at a pace that could be kept up with by enterprises and corporates wanting to deploy those technologies. There's always the fight between the vendor and the the buyer to get the the right skills. And in fact, to to make that work better, a lot of the vendors set up certification programs uh, for companies and and their buying staff to achieve engineering uh, cr- credentials, that sort of thing on the vendor's products. Um, and the vendor would often offer very comprehensive training, which is good for the vendor in that the, you know, the enterprise buying the, the services would then employ those vendors' uh, products and services. So it helped train people on both sides of the equation and it helped move those technologies into the enterprise. But what's happened more recently is that rate of technology change has increased so much now that it is harder for the individual enterprises to even keep up with those technologies. They literally can't hire and train staff quickly enough on the new technologies before it's almost the next generation has arrived. So we we do have a shortage in Australia of IT specialists. I mean, what would the possible solutions be? You're right, we do have a shortage. You know, there's a recent report by Deloitte Access Economics and the Australian Computer Society only six months ago. Is, you know, there's, they, they think there's about a 5% growth in the number of ICT professionals uh, in 2014, which is 600,000 people. Do you think that, that would be enough? And they see demand for another 100,000 workers per year over the next six years. In terms of the solutions, I'm not quite sure you can you can just keep throwing money at it. A lot of ICT professionals have actually left to go to other professions, you know, including things like you know, accounting and marketing and advertising. In fact, 47% of all ICT workers who studied ICT didn't actually end up there. So it's not just, you know, get more graduates into university and, and, and it'll solve the problem. So I think the enterprises have to look 
at a slightly different way of operating. And that's, you know, really something Centrelink can, can help with. We call this hybrid IT. So if you can't, if, you, if you're an enterprise and you want to deploy a certain technology and you don't have those skills in-house, it is perfectly valid to selectively outsource uh, those technologies to specialist vendors who do. So that, that implementation of hybrid IT is actually one of, one of the alternative ways of getting the technology uh, you need without necessarily having to train all the staff yourself. Does that mean then that communications would take some, some a company to a company that does you know, contract uh, programming, coding, and stuff like that. Are you talking about using Bangalore and Hyderabad and places like that? Well, I think that's that's not a new concept. Um, you know, development development coding has been outsourced to those places for a very long time. That, that's part of it. I mean, the you know the Indian outsourcers have, have cornered the market in in many areas where highly skilled, low cost workers can be found overseas. But it's not just about coding and development. It's about deployment. You know, if you look at uh, a trend such as BYOD, bring your own device. There is a phenomena that outpaced the CIO's capability to deal with it. You know, particularly the younger generation, they'd come to a job, they'd have a thousand dollar, you know, mobile in their pocket, which they're familiar with, and they wanted to use it um, instead of getting the old corporate, you know, BlackBerry as it used to be. And now they've got two phones. They want to use their mobile, they want to use their tablet, and they are kind of horrified when their employer tells them they can't do that. So that's a good example of where the industry has come in to, to kind of launch new services and products that enable an enterprise to have secure BYOD devices connected to the corporate network using you know software packages to lock them down and, and avoiding the need to, to have to train your people in-house to do that yourself. And that takes you beyond just the IT department, doesn't it? I mean, it takes you up to the managing director in a lot of ways. He likes the iPad and iPhone as well. Yeah, absolutely. So this mixing and matching idea of, you know, some things we should do in-house, specialist applications that, you know, obviously that business knows better than anyone else or applications where the information is highly sensitive. They may want to purely deal with in-house, but where the technology is beyond them or there are economies of scale to be had or globalization becomes easier, then this idea of selective outsourcing to hybrid IT organizations, whether that be at the infrastructure level, security, or indeed applications, becomes much more prevalent. I, I take it, though, that selective outsourcing would become more prevalent of practice as companies grow because, uh, you know, there'll be so much more they'll have to manage. Would that be right? Well, uh, yeah, it's up to the individual organization, but if you, know, if you don't take advantage of new technologies, you're probably going to fall behind. I mean, if you look... I like to run an experiment where I say, don't think about today, think about 10 years time. You know, what, what does the workforce employee situation look like with regards to IT? Where are applications being deployed? Who's responsible for those applications at that time? And, you know, I ask this question to people and they say, oh, that's easy. Everything's going to be in the cloud in 10 years. And to some extent, I think that will be true. Um, and even today, you know, when I grew up, we had records. Uh, we had to go and buy a record player, go to the shop, physically buy a record, bring it home, play it. And even then the sound didn't sound very good. Then we went to DVDs and Blu-rays. And now I have an iPhone that I can click and buy an entire album whenever I want from wherever I want and play it immediately. And the billing just happens in the background. Who would have predicted that 20 years ago? So... I like to run this experiment. What's it going to be like in 10 years? And I think organizations will be extremely fluid in terms of the way they adopt IT. 
to deliver outcomes for their business. And people will not bat an eyelid about having some workloads in-house, some with vendor A, some with vendor B, temporary production workloads or business continuity. And I think that's that's where we're heading. Well, that would presuppose, wouldn't it, that organisations have to become very, very forward-looking and uh, say, okay, well, where are we going to be in 10 years' time? And uh, very few Australian organisations do that. Yeah, we're starting to see a change in the role of the CIO and COO and CTO now. Um, and, and this isn't this isn't something that's happened over the last couple of years. It's been building up over the last five to 10 years to where they become not so much the sole provider of IT in their in their companies, but they they become governance organisations. So the skill sets that those functions employ are more senior senior roles, doing vendor management, contract management, service level management, and technology selection, rather than actually going out and buying it, installing it, and, and running it themselves. So they become like administrators more than anything else. Well, they become strategists. Right, yeah. So, you know, if I'm a bank, what are the technologies that I'm going to need to compete in the next five to ten years? And in the banking industry, which we're quite close to, um, it's all about getting closer to the consumer, uh, getting into their home through their mobile devices. So they can do banking, you know, on a Sunday night and, and eliminating the barriers to doing business with them. And, you know, in years gone by, IT organizations would have been quite precious about that, you know, that's my domain, we're going to insource that, we're going to buy it, train up our own staff, and you kind of had this kind of almost empire-building approach, but that that isn't going to work at all today. If you want a new technology and you want it quickly, often the, the, the quickest way to deployment will be to go to somebody who's already got skills in this, who can say they've done it five times with five other customers, and could, you know, could have you up and running in a couple of months. And then at the end of that period, which may only be one or two years, you have the ability to say, well, thank you very much, I don't need that technology anymore, and move on without having a big capital uh, outlay that hasn't been paid off inside the organisation, for example. So, um, in other words, in short, the advice to uh, corporates these days is look ahead and be very, very flexible. Look ahead, absolutely be agile. Agility is a key word that comes up. It's one of the big reasons people move to cloud. They like the ability to pay as you go, to sign on when you want, to sign off when you want. And, you know, the, the problems around scalability and uh, features, that's now, the, that's now the problem with the cloud vendor. They like to outsource that to somebody else. Um, so it's already quite prevalent in infrastructure. So IaaS infrastructure as a service, cloud, but it needs to be more prevalent around applications and processes further up the stack. Stuart Mills, thank you very much for your time. Fascinating. I think the other bit of the answer would be to the corporates, go take some good advice. Uh, Many of them do, I think. The the, the conferences I attend are fully populated. Okay. Look, uh, thank you very much, Stuart. It's been fantastic. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? I think it's really, really interesting and well worth listening to, actually. It's um, some really good insights there into how the business operates. And now Chris Caden. Qantas announced it was uh, reducing its capacity because of what was happening with the federal election and consumer demand. McGrath has announced a drop-off in listings. Uh, Maybe it's because of the election. How is the election affecting the economy? 
I, I suspect um, not very much at all. I'm always suspicious of these alleged reasons. Um, for, uh, just as one example, I've never met anybody who said they were going to take a plane trip, but now they weren't certain they were because there's an election coming up. I think that um, people are too hasty to, uh, you know, to take other events and and blame it for some reason on the forthcoming election. I think if you looked at, at historical data, there are always anecdotes. But I think if you looked at the hard data historically, uh, you'd struggle to find a pre-election depressing effect on the economy. Uh, but a lot of uh, retailers are saying elections are always a time of uncertainty and uh, people are less likely to go out spending. I mean, how, how do you see that? As, as I said, I think that's all anecdotes. Um, I think very, very, you know, very little of it is, reflect, is reflected in the hard data. I think if you went back and systematically looked, for example, at GDP growth or retail trade statistics um, uh, leading up to an election, uh, sometimes you might find um, an, a weak anomaly. But uh, I, think, I think in general, it would be very difficult to find a, a, a systematic effect. Um, I, whenever I hear pre-election talk, I think it's largely anecdote and very little data. So how do you see, is, you know, say retail confidence, that sort of thing, do you think it's affecting them? They're using this as an excuse? Uh, I I think it does get used um, as an excuse when you can't think of some other reason why something's happened. Well, it must be because we're we're only 11 weeks away from an election. Um, The... um, the, uh, certainly, I guess, uh, for some people, it, it has increased their uncertainty and so there may be a little reluctance, but uh, you don't really see it. I mean, the consumer confidence numbers bounce around from month to month. Uh, and once again, I think if you went back and looked scientifically at where, what happens uh, pre-elections, yeah, sometimes it's down and sometimes it's up. It's interesting you say that because... Uh the other week, uh, the uh, ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Fit numbers were down and uh, ANZ was saying, oh, that's because of the federal election. And uh, this week they're up and they're saying, oh, that's because of the latest unemployment figures, uh, yeah, showing unemployment's yeah. at 5.7%. Yeah, yeah. And, and really, really, the true answer probably is these are estimates. They're based on sampling from month to, from month, to month. There is always some sample noise in that. What we've picked up is noise. Chris, do you think that we've got in the habit of sort of trying to make an assessment on data that's maybe 24 hours old? Uh, well, yes, I suppose there is. Um, uh, there, there probably is a tendency to uh, uh, to jerk the knees, if you like, to um, uh, to overreact to a piece of data that may be reversed tomorrow or the next day. Same thing happens pretty much with oil prices in the share market, for example. Yeah, the share market's sort of in a state of uh, knee-jerk forever these days, doesn't it? Well, yes, you know, I mean, <laughs> around about the uh, 11th of, um, of February, I, I was kind of saying, this is way too much, this is way overdone, this is way too pessimistic, um, it's, got to, it's got to turn sometime soon, and, you know, and, uh, and after that I was saying, Chris, you're a genius, but now... It looks to me like, if anything, it's gone too far the other way. Um, the, so, yeah, you've got a share market that overreacted and was too weak. Then almost everything turned uh, at the same time, be it credit, uh, credit spreads, be it, be it commodity prices, be it the US dollar, be it the Australian dollar, almost ev- uh, and, and share markets. Everything turned and went the other way. And in particular, uh, it almost looks as if the euphoria in, 
as well, euphoria is probably the wrong word, but the rise in sh the share market in recent uh, weeks is looking about as over, or not quite as overdone, but is looking overdone just as the fall was in the first six weeks of the year. Oh, it's interesting because um, when you look at the comments coming out of the Fed, uh, it would indicate that they themselves really don't know what's ahead because there's so much uncertainty out there in the markets. Correct. I'm not sure if there's, um, you know, when was the last time we were certain about the future? I'm not sure if there's more uncertainty than there was. I suppose in a sense, we're in a brave new world where fewer of the rules that um, we thought governed the economy, fewer of them uh, seem to apply. So in that sense, I guess, yes, uh, uncertainty has picked up. And when we, well, it's almost like manic depressive when we go from, uh, you know, share market going south to share market going north um, as, as, as quickly as has happened this year. I suppose it's right to say, yeah, people um, are really just overreacting every, almost every day, re-guessing what lies ahead. And we're also affected uh, as never before by what's going on, say, in Greece or what's going on in China or the US, aren't we? It's a, the globalisation of things seems to have changed uh, a lot. Oh, well, it's, it's true that, yeah, we are more worried about global factors, but if you're more, more worried about Greece now than uh, you were in, say, 2011 and 2012, then you've been reading the wrong newspapers. You know, some worries have receded into the background, and European debt uh, is one of those. But, yeah, there are genuine concerns about growth in China. It clearly has slowed. Is it slowing further? Uh, if it does, what are the consequences for commodity prices? What are the consequences for Australia? Um, on the other hand, uh, right now China has engaged in a fair bit of stimulus. So many thanks to Chris Caden for his insights. And uh, what do you think, Leon? Well, I, I tend to agree with him. Um, I think a lot of companies are using the election as an excuse. I'm positive of that, That's yeah. right. Uh, but, you know, the issue is that uh, consumer confidence is a bit all over the place uh, and the, the business figures are a bit all over the place too. So the, the reality is, as Chris says, um, no one really knows what's in, what's in front of us. That's right, and I think a whole bunch of different uh, factors affect uh, public opinion and public opinion sways like trees in the wind. That's right, indeed. But, Gary, it's been an amazing week in news. First of all, the price of oil fell to its lowest level in two months. That's after oil-producing nations failed to reach any agreement at their meeting in Doha over the weekend. And as news of the summit's failure hit the market, oil futures fell as much as 6.8% in New York and global benchmark crude fell 5.22% to $40.85 amid expectations that it signals to the market that the key producers are going to resume their battle for market share and halt the recovery of the oil price. And that will affect markets around the world, Gary. Right around, that's right. So what happened was that members of the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Companies failed to strike a deal to freeze output and boost sagging crude prices. The problem was they couldn't get some sort of agreement because Iran had made a last-minute decision not to attend because they want to get their oil supplies up when the world has lifted its sanctions. So as a result, they've decided not to attend. Saudi Arabia said it wouldn't freeze production unless all the other major producers did the same. 
With tensions between all the regional rivals running high, nearly 20 of the world's largest oil exporters couldn't find enough common ground. And the failure to strike a deal took the market by surprise. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised that they were surprised because given that it's in the Middle East largely, um, they haven't agreed in centuries. But uh, it's actually a a worry because uh, now we're going to watch the price of oil and I think that's going to be quite critical. It will. Mark, you lower petrol prices, lower fuel prices are going to help world economy. It is. To one to one extent, to, to one, one extent. extent, yeah, but uh, it will damage a lot of comp- companies. Oh uh, yes, and and countries, companies like say Woodside, Santos. Yep, all of those. All of those. Interestingly enough, a Fairfax Ipsos poll found that sixty-five percent of voters, two out of three, support a royal commission. Only one in four oppose it. And the poll found the support for a Royal Commission was, of course, highest amongst Labor and Greens voters at 78 and 79%, respectively. You'd expect that. It also had support from more than half the coalition's voters at 53%. And the issue is that Labor's turned the Royal Commission into a damaging election issue. And with the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Treasurer Scott Morrison saying it's not necessary and that Labor's call is a distraction from this week's uh, special sitting of Parliament where the government was uh, pushing the Senate to pass two bills to increase the regulation of trade unions, which they didn't, of course, and now we're heading for a, a double, dis- double dissolution. Yeah, that's right. But I think it's fair to say that Turnbull and Morrison are correct. We don't need a Royal Commission. There's plenty of control on the banks. Whether the voting public will take any notice has to be doubted. Well, let's just see. But anyway, the federal government is going to use a levy on the banks to increase surveillance powers to crack down on financial misconduct as it fends off continued pressure from Labor over that Royal Commission. And the levy will provide $120 million over four years for the Australian Securities Investments Commission. That replaces the cuts in the 2014 Abbott budget. A new ASIC commissioner will focus on banking prosecutions. They'll be appointed. ASIC will get $57 million for increased surveillance, investigation and prosecution capacity to p- pursue cases. And ASIC boss Med- Greg, Greg Metcraft, who was appointed during the Gillard government, his term has been extended for another 18 months. So that's interesting. But what's really interesting is that the funding for, for all of this is going to come from the banks and the yeah. financial services companies. And so the big concern is whether the banks will try to take that back from the customers. The uh, the government's suggesting they're going to keep an eye on that. Uh, but the banks have welcomed the, uh, the thing because a Royal Commission would probably put them even more on the nose. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, when I saw the banks welcoming it yesterday, I thought there's something wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, indeed, a hundred more cops, eh? ASIC cops on the road. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, look, I'm a bit worried, but I'm a bit worried if the banks are all for it. Anyway, Gary, we're approaching the budget, and of course, we've got all sorts of leaks. And uh, this week, uh, Sky News came out with a leak that the budget government is looking at 16 billion dollars in budget savings. Sky News. Uh, said the government's plan to spruik that number in TV advertising campaigns as part of his election strategy. And Sky presenter Paul Murray claimed he'd seen the uh, script of the promise of the government TV ad, which the government planned to uh, run immediately after the budget. And I'll tell you now, Siggy's, multinational tax laws and super are all in the firing line. Yeah, well, multinational tax laws are the big emotional political issue. Uh, but if Tobacco cops it again and people stop smoking and giving themselves heart and lung diseases could save a lot of money in public health. That's right, that's right. Now, um, the Governor of the Reserve Bank, Glenn Stevens, gave a fascinating talk in New York this week. He rejected 
the notion that central banks should pump money into revive economies, and he warned that helicopter money drops are hard to stop once they, once they start. And in a speech in New York, Stephen said helicopter money was not necessary anyway. Now, the term helicopter money was invented by renowned conservative economist Milton Friedman, who used the metaphor of dropping money down from a helicopter to illustrate how a central bank could uh, cause inflation if it really wanted to uh, simply by distributing money. And the term has become controversial lately because former US Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke discussed its use in a blog post looking at measures if there was a further slowdown in the US economy. At the same time, these sorts of things are now being discussed in Japan, where the country is struggling to shake off two decades of deflation. And Mr. Stevens said canvassing these sorts of options uh, showed there was a limit to what central banks could do. And all of this coincides with the release of RBA minutes, suggesting um, that the RBA is in no hurry to cut interest rates. And as a result, Gary, the Aussie dollar has rocketed up to 78 US cents. And Stevens also said that um, that low interest rates hurt retirees and it's beginning right. to show. That's right. And uh, so he made that point. It was a very good point. Indeed. Now, Australian consumer confidence has surged, boosted uh, by solid economic data and bypassing any uncertainty coming out of China. Uh, global markets and Canberra are now locked into election mode. And the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index rose 3.5% in the week ending the 17th of April. Now, Gary, that's a big turnaround because it had fallen 4% in the last four weeks. Yep, that's right. It's come around a lot. Now, uh, the ANZ Head of Economics, Felicity Emmett, said consumer sentiment was now back to its long-run average, and she reckons the change was because of the jobless rate slipping to 5.7%, and the National Australia Bank Business Conditions Survey last week showing conditions were back to levels since the global financial crisis. But the issue is it's not translating into spending. It's slumped again. It's falling by 0.7% according to the Commonwealth Bank Business Sales Indicator. And it's a sign that consumer caution has crept back into the economy. And uh, that fall comes after a fall of 0.5% in February and 0.2% in January. And it's a stark contrast to last year's monthly growth of 06 to 0.8%. And annual growth has slowed from 5.6% to 4% in, of spending in March. Compared, and that's compared to 7.2%, 7.6% last year. And sales fell 1.8% on a seasonally adjusted basis. So that is quite a worry. People are not spending because they're being more cautious. Yeah, well, we're being more confident to keep our money in the mattress. That's right. And at the same time, the uh, the six-month annualised growth rate in the Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index, which indicates the likely pace of economic activities through to nine months in the future, fell from minus 1.07% in February to minus 1.53% in March. And that indicates Australia is stuck in low trend growth. And that's a worry. Now, Qantas has reduced its planned domestic capacity expansion for the second half of the financial year, citing the federal election and reduce consumer demand. And in its statement to the stock exchange, Qantas said its capacity additions in the final three months of financial year will be 0.5% to 1% compared with a 2% forecast in February. And it said capacity growth in the final quarter will now be negative. And it's removed three Sydney to Los Angeles services and it's redirected capacity from Singapore to Hong Kong. And analysts are saying Qantas profits are going to fall by as much as 7% as a result of this. Now, listed real estate group McGrath has slashed 
its earnings forecast and expected dividend payout and another sign the Sydney property market is cooling down. Now, McGrath floated in December. It ended a trading hold on Friday. It said there'd been an unforeseen low volume of listings and sales in the first half of April, particularly in north and northwestern suburbs of Sydney. It said now expects listings in north and northwestern Sydney to be 25 to 30% lower and it's attributed much of this to a reduction in Chinese buyer activity in northwestern Sydney. And as a result, earnings would be hit by 3 to $4 million. And it said it would um, decrease the target dividend from approximately 4.5% per share to 3.3 to 3.5% per share. And their share price has been heading south ever since. Now, Aldi's sales are forecast to reach $15 billion by 2020, according to Morgan Stanley. Now, the 90% increase in sales over four years will threaten the Coles Woolworths duopoly. It will see the German retailer's market penetration rising from 36.8% nationally to 54.9%. And it also means Aldi's sales will be... Uh, really cutting into the sales of Coles and Woolworths. And Morgan Stanley says Aldi sales have already climbed 60% to $8 billion between 2013 and 16. And Aldi is pushing the national food and liquor market expected to rise from 6% to 10%, overtaking Metcash. And Aldi customers are spending more money too. According to Morgan Stanley, they're now spending an estimated $100 over a four-week period. And back in 2007, they were spending $60. That's a healthy increase, isn't it? That's right. And um, Roy Morgan data shows that Aldi now has a 12.1% share of the total supermarket share, uh, up slightly from March 2015 when it was 116 The figures show Aldi's already eclipsing Metcash. IGA stores, according to Roy Morgan, 5.3 million Australian consumers shop at Aldi, 10.5 million at Woolworths, 10 million at Coles, and only 4, mil- 4 million at IGA. Yeah, but it does show what smart management, good quality and um, sharp pricing can do. That's right. Now, two Australian mining companies have cut their iron ore forecast. Rio Tinto has cut its forecast for production next year from its Australian mines by up to 20 million tonnes because of delays rolling out its giant driverless train system. And Rio Tinto told told the market that production from Pilbara was expected to be between 330 to 340 million tonnes in 2017, compared to its previous forecast of 350 million tonnes, and attributed this, this to the delay in the auto haul project. And BHP has loaded its iron ore forecast to 260 million tonnes this year, down from 270 million tonnes, blaming it on bad weather and, rail work, and the railway network maintenance program. And it's cut its full-year production estimate by 3% to 229 million tonnes. And at the same time, the price of iron iron ore has been going up it's it's up above 62 dollars now it's gone up something like 44 percent this year gary yeah so anyway that's that's not bad and finally gary a chinese-led group will buy australia's biggest cattle company after partnering with local investors now shenzhen listed hanan dakang pasture farming will purchase 80 percent of australia's largest landholder s kidman and co and they've teamed up with ASX-listed rural, Australian Rural, and they'll buy the other 20%. So the Chinese will buy 80%, Australians will buy 20%. And this is not the first time Kidman's been on the auction block. Last year, the company, which has almost 11 million hectares of cattle stations, including the world's biggest, Anna Creek, was up for sale for Chinese buyers, but the treasurer, Scott Morrison, knocked it back, saying it was contrary to the national interest. And having an Australian investor on board this time might make a difference. And the last latest deal still requires Foreign Investment Review Board approval. And true Scott Morrison has made an interim order to prevent the sale going ahead for 90 days while he considers whether the deal should be approved. But Gary, I suspect the big issue for him is whether the Nats are going to approve and that's going to be the big issue. And it'll be a very big issue, I think. But uh, rural capital is going to float on the thing and offer public shares. 
That's right. That's right. And there'll be a lot of jobs coming out of it. So let's just watch that space. That'll be really, really important, I think. And uh, that's it for this week, Gary. Next week, we've got Russell Yardley. Indeed, we have, talking about technology and uh, innovation. That's it. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.